character. In the VR version, you don't have a character. You have to set new blueprints for the camera perspective. How did you change your approach with development? And you know, you'd mentioned VR. Walk me through that learning process. Side quest accepted. When you decided to take the first game you made to shore and then you ported it, I would say, or you remade it essentially for VR. Walk me through that process and the decision making behind it, where you took that game, you ported it to VR, and then kind of the results you got. When we released the standard version, people came to the social media, to Discord and said, why don't you make it into a VR version? It would look amazing. Yeah. So it was mostly like a fan service. It was not in our target to make a VR version because we know the difficulties it has when making a VR title as a first game it's very difficult because there is a lot of VR headsets that you have to implement the blueprints uh, to work for each headset yeah. so there's a big difficulty there there's a, an amount of uh, different VR headsets that uh, your game must be compatible with that's the main difficult part and yeah. when you make some blueprints some codes and stuff it may work for Oculus for example and may not work for another VR headset that's when problems start Start to appear. You can't just take the game you have and port it over as a VR title. I mean, the planes you're working with are different. Like, it's not just 3D. It's almost like a 4D effect at that point, right? So how difficult was something like that? Are you almost like remaking the game because of that? Or how does that work? The first thing you do is everything in the game is made with blueprints. Let's say you have your character. In the VR version, you don't have a character. You have to set new blueprints for the camera perspective. Everything has to be made differently. It's like a remade version of the standard version. We take uh, the base core of the game and we change everything so it can run uh, inside uh, the VR. It's a very different process but it's almost the same because it works with blueprints again. I never realized there was that many different headsets to be honest. Was that like something that you guys kind of didn't realize until you jumped into it and then you're like holy shit there's tons of these things like kind of what was that? Yeah because we had the uh, really difficult time making the VR version work perfectly yeah, because yeah. there are a lot of issues uh, that I mentioned before with uh, different VR headsets. That was the main problem for us. We are two people making games. I take the part of uh, 3D character modeling, everything that has to do with visuals. And my programmer takes all the programming. And for him, it was really, really frustrating to make it into the VR version. It's something he never done before. So when we jumped into the VR version, it was like uh, very difficult for us to achieve it. But, the turnaround uh, too was impressive. I mean, it's a year apart from each other, especially with the shore being your first game. Yeah, I remember uh, my programmer, he had to take rest. Uh, for a month or so after we finished making the VR. I'm sure. Because, yeah, he was super dizzy all the time and stuff like that. Imagine working eight hours a day with a VR headset on your face. I day. can't even imagine. And when we launched the game, we already exhausted. And yeah. then we had to cover up with updates because there are different issues on different headsets. And when we fixed these issues, different issues appeared on the different headsets. Yeah. And that's when we had the real problem. So with this game, it came out in early access in April. It's had largely positive reviews. At this point right now, you guys are still in early access. You're rolling out updates regularly. This game is still in its own evolution as you're kind of pushing it towards like a full release. So with that in mind, taking the lessons you've learned from the short, its VR version, and then moving them into this title, how did you change your approach with development 
happened and you know you mentioned vr walk me through that learning process from your first two games to this one and how you kind of evolved with this title what we learned from the other games is like uh, keep uh, keep updating the game till it becomes uh, super satisfied for the gamer yeah so that's what we follow at this moment we want to bring the game to its full potential so you've released three games in the course of what two and a half ish years like just maybe just over three years there's two of you on your team that is a very impressive feat seeing as a lot of indie developers use a three-year lifespan for one game or or longer or just under three so i mean for you guys that is that's a lot of volume i'm curious on your mindset as you approach that and how you achieve that did you guys have a background in development prior to this or did you just kind of dive into it we didn't have a concept you know we will make everything based on that. Every day we have new, we had new ideas and we just implemented them. Mm-hmm. Since I met the character modeler, I will just make it instantly in like a single day or two, and then my programmer will take it and create blueprints and bump yeah. it in the game. So we just work like that. We work really freely. We don't have deadlines. Uh, mm-hmm. We don't have a base that we have to follow. We, we are freely creating stuff. I think that's the most fun part uh, when making a game. For you guys, you're making 3D games. I'm jumping ahead a little bit here. But you're making 3D games. You're making VR games. A lot of those concepts are AAA concepts, right? Because I think a lot of indie developers, you'll see when you go on Steam, you see like hundreds and hundreds of 2D games and pixel games, Metroidvanias and roguelites, you know, top-down kind of stuff. And that's kind of the starting point for indie developers. And a lot of indie developers kind of stay in that lane. Whereas if you look at a 3D game, I think instantly, whether you mean to or not as a player, you just instantly start comparing it to stuff in the AAA space. And then all of a sudden, there's this like gap between what AAA is doing and what indie is doing and it's unfair but a lot of players would then all of a sudden just write a game off because of that and they don't process like you know indie two team members versus like 500 team members but to them they don't think about that so for you guys was that a concern with these games as you're creating them or how did you kind of approach that from a mentality standpoint and then let it show in your game as you're creating them our mentality was never to challenge uh, those uh, AAA titles and be like, oh, we will make a better game than yeah. uh, those uh, AAA games. No, we, mm-hmm. we just like, uh, okay, let's create games and let's do what we like. Mm-hmm. It's it's like that. We didn't have a certain uh, point of view, like how we will manage to, you know, go against uh, the big titles or the mm-hmm. successful titles. We, w- we were like, let's create and and see the outcome. As I said, we were more free on our decisions. Uh, we didn't have uh, a mentality that holds us back. You know, when I look at AAA versus indie games, I think the worlds are so different from a technical standpoint, from a publisher standpoint, from a political standpoint even, and from a player-based standpoint. I want to say about something that, about that. When big companies, they copy each other mm. because they say, what was successful last year? Okay, this game was successful last year. Okay, let's copy it. Let's do it better. It will yeah. make us a lot of money. That's why gamers anymore don't trust big companies because they don't care about the gaming community. They care about making money. That's what we see uh, a lot of politics in video games uh, and a lot of different things. They want to approach uh, the viewer as much as they can. That's not our point. We want to just create what we enjoy and what we have in our mind, what we fantasize. I mean, just look, I mean, from a macro standpoint, right? I think pushing back a little bit on that would be 
As a AAA company, I think AAAs a lot of times do run into this problem where I always use Call of Duty as an example. I think Call of Duty has, and a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of large-scale titles like, you know, I don't know, Battlefield, uh, Call of Duty, um, Assassin's Creed, stuff like that, like very large-scale titles from large-scale companies with hundreds and hundreds of people working for them. I think the problem is players always ask for change and they always want change. But then ultimately, I think gamers and players are creatures of habit, right? And you expect a certain, you expect to enjoy things a certain way. And I think sometimes with AAA titles, you get to the point where your title is larger than life. And if it starts to change, people all of a sudden push back on that. And I think AAA ultimately it makes micro moves because it can't necessarily make bigger moves because then it will lose its profit margins, which it uses to pay its employees, which then it can't pay them if it can't get its margins. And then all of a sudden, the whole house of cards comes tumbling down, which is why it's so great for indie developers because they don't have to, they're much more free in that regard. They don't have to worry about, you know, massive contracts and Xbox deals and Game Pass exclusives and like all those like crazy politics that have started to really creep into the the gaming world in the last couple of years, which like you said, it really has kind of throttled creativity in AAA, which is unfortunate, you know, because there's so much there's so much potential there. And AAA, as opposed to indie, indie now has kind of taken the initiative on that. Which I think is why, like you said, like there's a lot of indie games that are getting really, really popular. And like indie games are more in the more in the limelight than they've ever been, which is exciting and more accessible than they've ever been. And that kind of brings me all the way back around to your title with with Aerosis, because when I think about like marketing a game like this, you're super passionate about this. You know, it shows that shows very clearly. And you guys clearly have a talent for what you're doing right now. So as you're creating this game as it comes out in early access do you worry about marketing with this game when it comes down to marketing it's uh, really important because mm. you may make the best game or whatever but mm. if you don't have enough marketing people will not know about it yeah. so marketing is like the 50 percent of the game like 50 percent is what you make what you create and 50 percent is the marketing making your game available to people know that your, your game is out there is yeah. really really important and some indie developers uh, ignore that almost completely sometimes i have seen this happening and i have seen good games uh, going to waste because they didn't do marketing and it's a good game uh, it's the same yeah marketing is a necessary key for an indie developer there are certain ways to do marketing without spending too much money but you have to spend time yourself doing it too. For myself, for my games, I have a marketing team of two people. They do all the marketing for me. I see. But yeah, marketing is really, really important. I enjoy uh, posting gifs on social media myself because yeah. I like to interact with uh, with the comments, uh, what mm. they think. It's like uh, an artist wants to show his painting and mm. uh, he wants to see the reactions of people. It's the same way when I'm making, uh, you know, a scene in the game or an asset or a character or, or a monster i want two people to see it and when i create something i post gifs on on reddit on facebook groups and uh, then i speak about it all day that's a small part of marketing because it helps you build a wishlist for your game and also helps you create an audience so it's really important to interact with people on social media and posting your work while you're making mm. the game 
I have to ask, do you guys do this full time? The moment I wake up, I work like uh, nine hours a day, something like that. I create stuff all day. I either I will create characters, assets, mm. anything that has to do with visuals. I even create sounds, mm. I record voice lines or whatever you can imagine. So we share the work 50-50 uh, with my programmer. It does all the blueprinting and stuff, all the programming. When people talk about stuff like burnout in the industry, right? You're talking about working these hours, pushing these games out. You got a lot of material circulating around you, right? So as you're pushing all this out, you mentioned you love doing this, obviously. So it's not as big of a focus. I think it's easier to work on something for long periods of time that you love doing. But there still is that level of like, I wouldn't say pressure, but expectation where you're creating a game, you're trying to get it to the finish line. For you, that's a short period of time from, you know, when you visualize it to when it is being released, obviously in the last couple of games. So what is the factory with something like Burnout for you guys specifically? Do you guys like, you know, I know you mentioned when you're doing the VR, you had to take some time off after that was done. So just kind of walk me through your guys' approach to that. There are moments that we work even like 15 hours a day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When we want to focus on something, like, okay, let's make this monster uh, available for this month. And I have to create the monster, and then my programmer takes the monster and places it into the game. Let's mm -hmm. say there are moments that we are super passionate about. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are some times that we will take break. Mm -hmm. So yeah. our working hours are very flexible. We can stop and start wherever we like. So mm -hmm. there is not someone above us that dictates it all. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. And, Indeed, indeed. That's a healthy mindset to have. And it's always good to be able to like, I think I heard a podcast where uh, Mr. Beast, the YouTuber was talking about it, where he was like, he doesn't really have a weekend, right? He'll work nine days straight and then he'll wake up one day. He'll be like, you know what? I'm taking the day off. And he just leaves it at that. So it's not so much about structured days off for a lot of devs. It's more about just working until you're tired, taking a step back, letting yourself rejuvenate and then diving all back in. And I think, you know, every developer is obviously different. They all approach it differently but having that mindset where you can just take that time and like rejuvenate is always really important and i think some devs struggle with it because like you feel like almost guilty that you're not working on your project you know i've heard a lot of yes. devs say that it, it's exactly like that for example i live with my wife and mm -hmm. uh, sometimes she was she's like uh, you are sitting too many hours a day. Let's go for a coffee or something. Yeah, yeah. Let's have a break. And it's uh, it's really helpful in the end of the day because yeah. when I come back, I have more new ideas to implement. When I look at this game though, right? With Aerosis, one of the things that jumped out with me is this is a co-op game, right? It's a co-op online game. And I think with co-op indie games, the problem that a lot of them run into is you could have rock solid servers, your matchmaking can be on point, everything can be working really, really well, but then you don't have enough players to fill those queues and then bring them into your game. And then that can reflect negatively. So for you guys, when you're pushing this game out in early access, how do you overcome something like that, right? Do you have like NPCs that fill your lobbies when you don't have players? Do you just like do a really huge push where you're trying to market the hell out of this game? Like how, how do you get past that, right? Uh, second option you spoke about now we try to push the game in a wave for example mm -hmm. when we will finish making the second map yeah. we will do a marketing cycle so we will bring more gamers to the to play the game we combine we use all aspects of marketing for example let's say there is a steam fest or Halloween Fest. We will run a big discount. Uh, we will do a marketing cycle. So we will bring uh, 
press players into the game and have the, the game more active. That's how we approach that uh, aspect. Do you guys do local co-op, like split screen? When I was looking, I couldn't figure out if you did or not. No, no. you, you right. can co-op with your friend. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no split screen. Where is your biggest player base? Is it North America or the Americas? Is it you have a large European player base? You have like an Asian player base? Where do you see this game and your past games being the most successful at? Actually, for analysis, we, we had a little surprise uh, when we released it because we saw like an 80% from Asia. It, it was really surprising because we didn't do a single marketing towards there. From China, to be more specific, we were super surprised. We didn't expect that. I have a friend who is from China. Mm. And I spoke to him and uh, I was like, can you check on social media? Why uh, my game is trending mm. on social media? And she was like, Chinese people uh, love uh, Lovecraft and stuff that has to oh. do with uh, the sea and stuff like yeah. that. And I was super surprised and I was like, okay, that's yeah, that's uh, that's something new. Both games you've made so far, the VR version of it included, I mean, they're all Lovecraftian games, correct? Yeah, correct. All Lovecraftian. And two you have planned, I mean, one obviously being a sequel, those would be Lovecraftian as well, right? All of them, yes. Necrophosis too. Necrophosis will be inspired by Stislo Beksinski. He's the painter, he's the famous painter who makes this macabre, mm. those uh, creepy paintings, uh, but it will have uh, Lovecraftian touch. Your game, it would be classified as like horror co-op, essentially, with a Lovecraftian theme within it. I always wonder, with a horror game, especially a horror action game, there's that line between like action sequences, right? Combat, and then like the horror theme. And for you guys, you have the Lovecraftian aspect as well. That's the aesthetic with this game. So as you're balancing all those things together, how do you make a game where it's like, you know, it has that feel where, you know, it has the horror element to it, but it also has the action element where you balance those two together, right? I'd imagine there's a ton of like, you know, play testing and, and looking at it, adjusting the lighting. And I have a, I have a very strict uh, theme when it comes down creating the atmosphere of the game because all the Lovecraftian settings that exist in the books and stuff, they are very moody. So I always follow a certain color palette when it mm -hmm. comes down creating the, the sky, the clouds, uh, the fog, I either will create it with a, a blue theme mm -hmm. or a green theme. Following a color palette, it's really important. But that kind of brings me to your enemies, right? Because the enemies in this game, and again, this just taps into like the ambitious aspect of your guys' title. The enemies in your game, they pick up on how players attack them, correct? I mean, they learn from what the players do as they're trying to combat them. So for an element like that, I would imagine on the technical side of things, there's a lot you have to take into account when you're putting those NPC enemies into your game. So walk me through how you do that and the limitations or the restrictions that you have to keep in mind as you're implementing something like that. Making an AI uh, learning based on what you do is really yeah. complicated. For example, let's say there's a house. We have set the AI for each time you go into the house and how long you stay in the house. For example, if you stay for over two minutes, we have set the, the AI to patrol the area more far away so you can escape. Mm -hmm. So based on your actions, it behaves accordingly. It's in an early stage, but mm -hmm. we keep adding details on yeah. their AI. So as we progress into the game, we test always new things. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
the AI behaves based on your actions. So there are many factors that triggers uh, its actions. That's how we approach the AI, but it's still in an early phase. So yeah, imagine your AI is only as smart as the amount of triggers you can put into it, right? And players are yeah. always super unpredictable. So you, like you said, you have to constantly make those updates as they do different things. There is one difficult thing about it. The more triggers you have in the game for your AI, the more complicated it gets. And the more complicated it gets, the engine has to read all these informations. And when you have complicated informations, it, it starts to give you a mess. So you start to have low FPS and stuff like that. It affects yeah. everything. Indie developers like two decades ago, your tool set was extremely limited and what you could do was extremely limited. And even the access you had to players was extremely limited. And now that's completely different. Like the reach you have, tools you have available, the asset stores, the freelancers, like there's a whole ecosystem for indie devs now. And that's only going to grow over the next couple of years. I can see that there's a big difference between two years and now. For, for, for me, as a 3D character modeler, yeah. I can say there's a huge difference because there are a lot of assets, uh, there are a lot of tools on the internet that will help you achieve results in a matter of hours when two years ago it would take you like two days at least. So there's a huge difference. And now with the AI, this uh, will boost the uh, workflow much further. Circling back to your game, right? Just talk to me about the overall game for a second. Eresis is a Lovecraft and co-op game. When you play with three more people, we made it like that in order to play the, be the best way. We will focus on making three maps on full release, but for each map, we have different mechanics. We want to, to follow that uh, blueprint to see how the players will react. So how do you approach from a development standpoint, from a level design standpoint, how do you approach making the map large enough to the point where you have that freedom to explore and battle enemies the way you want to battle them, but then not making it so large where it slows down the gameplay and it starts to kind of take the players out of that element and that Lovecraftian horror and like that setting? It's really difficult because when we created the first map, it was too large. We countered that by making uh, random events and stuff like that in certain places. We we had to add more gameplay in order to fill the gaps, you know, running from one point to another. But based on the community, we added stuff. What is the roadmap moving into 2024? Like, we're getting close to that end point of this year. Next year, you know, I'm sure you have patches in mind, but then you're also, you're already you know, you've got your sights set on the next two games as well. So how do you divvy all of that up? And what does that roadmap look like? By the end of this year, we go full release. We hope so. <laughs> and after that, we will see how the people will react from the yeah. full release. And if they are satisfied with the game, we will keep making a few more updates. And then we go focus on the Necrophysis project, I which see. is a story game. Is it single player then? It's not, it's not co-op? Yeah. Okay. It's a single player game. It's like the sword. As a developer, I have to ask, you've worked on single player, you've worked on co-op, you've worked on VR. I know VR isn't one of your favorites to work on. So between co-op and single player, is it fair to say that you would you enjoy working single player a little bit more? That's true. It's more creatively enjoyable because I want to express what I have in mind. So it's more like a story. And yeah. through that story, I will create different scenes, different monsters, different events. Uh, yeah, it's more enjoyable. The co-op games, the RS is, uh, is more complicated. Mm. It's more difficult to make because uh, you have to deal with uh, multiplayer aspect. Oh, right now, you know, a lot of development teams 
they're not in person anymore. A lot of them anyway. They'll work remote. They'll work through Discord. Some of them are states away. Some of them are countries away. Some of them are continents away. For you guys, is your is your programmer in Greece? Do you guys like meet up and like you do stuff in person? Or are you guys just full remote talking through Discord? Like how does that dynamic work for you guys? When he's working, he's from Spain. He's working from Spain. So oh, nice. he works. Okay. And yeah. I work from my uh, we never the the funny thing is we never met each other in person we were about to meet this summer but because yeah. uh, due to my wedding uh, we get married in one month we had a lot of stuff to prepare thank yeah. you <laughs> <laughs> uh, we had a lot of stuff to prepare so we scheduled yeah. it for uh, this winter so we will meet in person this winter that's exciting. We're working, we are working every day together since uh, the sort of beginning of the yeah. sort to now, and we never have met. So, yeah, we we speak through Discord every day. Mm-hmm. We are active, uh, but most likely we just we just chat. Don't use camera or microphones or whatever.